This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. This is Joris Peels, and welcome to another edition of the 3D Pod, together with Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm great, Joris. How you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. The weather's wonderful here in Spain, and uh, uh, really looking forward to the weekend. So uh, absolutely fantastic. Nice. nice. I will say that the smog has lifted here in New York City from fires in the north, so it's also looking good. Who do we got on the 3D pod today? Well, we've got Nick Pierce on the 3D pod today. So Nick is, well, actually you started at uh, um, uh, Michael Page, who's a like, kind of recruiter or headhunter, as he probably doesn't want to be called. Uh, <laughs> then they founded I Am Digital, which is like a platform to kind of bring people together uh, around career growth. Uh, then he worked for Alexander Daniels, or uh, he did that actually before that. Uh, and then later on, he went to Alexander Daniels Global. It's like a dedicated recruiter uh, based on on additive manufacturing. So it's an additive manu- manufacturing recruitment company, bringing together companies that need people with uh, people who are looking for jobs or people who are mm. happy with the jobs but maybe have a better offer coming their way. So, uh, yeah, well, welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks. Thanks, both of you. Nice to uh, nice to be here. So, so first, how did you end up in this whole recruiting kind of headhunting game did you just roll into it or why, you why, showed why up you start it? Uh, application please <laughs> yeah yeah no i i think this is a story told many times but um i fell into recruitment you know i did a business degree at university um i wanted kind of a, a broad-based business background but genuinely didn't know what i was going to do after university I'd worked in um, retail management through college and university and enjoyed customer-facing roles. And somebody suggested, hey, you'd be pretty good at recruitment. So I fell into it. And, um, you know, here I am 18 years on, still still there. And uh, the, the funny thing is, I mean, over the years that I've been in the industry, I must have spoken to a thousand or more recruiters and not a single one of them left university and said, hey, I'm going to become a recruiter. Um, But uh, it seems to be one of those careers that most people fall into, and you either love it or hate it. And thankfully, I love it. And then how did you get so involved specifically in the 3D print industry? That's a a really great story. Um, So we founded my first recruitment company, Alexander Daniels, some 13 years ago. And I used to recruit accountants. And not that that wasn't exciting enough, but... um, I saw a story here in the UK about a guy, a guy called Stephen Power, who had severely disfigured his face in a motorbike accident. And basically, the story told how they used 3D printing um, uh, first to create molds to help the surgeons practice what would be quite a complicated facial reconstruction. But they then also used 3D printing to 3D print um, the reconstructed pieces that were going into his face. And I was just blown away i was like wow this is like something out of starship troopers um and and i'm not an engineer as i said i got a business background but i was just fascinated by this technology um so i I did um at the time deloitte were offering a, a massive open online course in 3d printing so i did that just to learn more about how the technology worked um and and the different types of technology Um, And through that, kind of got immersed in a network of really passionate people who, you know, were only too happy to talk to me about, you know, the technology 
And, and, you know, over a period of about six to nine months, you know, I learned a lot about the limitations that the technology faced in terms of speed, repeatability, availability of materials. But when I started talking to some of the companies in the industry, I think one of the biggest gaps that they'd identified for their growth was um, talent. Um, and actually, when they found out I was a recruiter, they were like, well, can you help us recruit this? So, you know, I didn't intend to set up a, another recruitment business in 3D printing, but we validated, you know, kind of by chance that there was a need there in the market. So, um, yeah, we founded Alexander Daniels Global. Um, we'd incubated it inside Alexander Daniels and then founded it as a separate entity eight years ago. So that's how I came to to be part of this amazing industry. And so what are the, like, I would guess off the top of my head that like maybe application development engineers would be, uh, and really senior salespeople would be the most difficult to, <laughs> positions to fill. Is that kind of true? Or what are the most difficult jobs to fill? Do, do, do you know what? Um, I'm constantly surprised by the demands that come through from some of our clients because there are, you know, roles like you just described, sales or application engineers or service engineers, which company to company are very similar. Um, but but I can take you back to the first role that we ever recruited for in 3D printing. And um, the company we were recruiting for were looking for an expert in powder management and powder handling, um, specifically on the R&D side. You know, that, you know, was a very challenging brief for the first role we ever took on. And, and there continue to be roles like that. I mean, recently, I'll give you an example. One client uh, came to us and they were looking for a waveform development engineer. I'd never even heard of that before we started talking to them about it. And now I'm somewhat of an expert in uh, in waveforms from a from a printing process perspective. So, you know, I think what you know, I really enjoy about this industry and, and why I continue to be motivated to work within it is that there's such diversity of roles and the R&D and innovation that's going on continue to push the boundaries of both the technology, but also then my ability and my team's ability to find the people that these companies need to succeed. Um, so, 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 you know, yeah, I wouldn't say there's any one role that is really hard to fill um you know some are harder than others but you know there's a, a big diversity of roles that we're asked to recruit for is are those some of the ones that you've been most i don't, I don't know why like surprised but just kind of like i didn't even as you said you didn't even know that was a role like when you first heard about you need someone to move powder around were you like, you know? <laughs> yeah i mean it makes sense when you understand the print process of particular uh, multi-jet fusion for example you know you, you need somebody who understands powder handling systems um you know and when you think about you know inkjet type print uh, systems you know you've got to understand that you've got a liquid um container and, and as it moves one way and another way it creates waves inside the container um, and that impacts how the liquid then drops out and is formed so you need to understand you know a myriad of different parameters then and, and, and how to design your product to ensure that the droplets come out exactly as you need them to so so it, it, yeah as i said it, it amazes me that these roles exist but you know, it also fascinates me to be able to learn so much about the technology while also helping companies to 
to find the people that they need to grow. Well, I, I, okay, let's talk about Canada. Like, like, some people like really, really don't like recruiters because there are a bunch of untrustworthy people <laughs> in the recruitment industry. Yeah. Uh, other people always like, oh my God, I'm wanted for a job. They're always really enthusiastic. How should I approach, let's say you, you approach me on LinkedIn for something or you, you contact me or something. How should I approach this as like just an individual, like an employee and you come to me with something interesting? Like, What would be the best way for me to approach that? I guess it depends on your circumstance, really. Um, I mean, we've developed some relationships with candidates, you know, that have spanned seven or eight years. You know, in some cases, we've placed candidates multiple times, you know, within their career. And, you know, I've watched, uh, you know, a kind of pre-sales application engineer ascend to the, 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 the role of sales director. And we personally helped him move twice um, in, in his career already. and. You know, that that I think is enriching, you know, as a recruiter to sort of see how people grow. But coming back to your, you know, sort of question, it depends on the circumstance of the individual. You know, I would say probably 80 percent of the people that we reach out to are not actively looking for a role. Um, you know, so so in in that sense, they are either not active and, and therefore not looking. And, you know, the contact from me may be unwarranted or unwanted. Um, and, and others may be in that bracket of passive. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is they're pretty happy where they are. But, you know, if something really fantastic came along, well, why not listen? And I guess that's my advice, um, you know, because you know, when I reach out to somebody, I have potentially one or two roles in mind that I would like to talk to them about that I feel based on their profile would be a good fit. You know, in, in terms of what I'm asking for from them, it's only a short amount of their time to listen and to learn. And, you know, I get to know a bit more about them. And it may be that what I had in mind isn't right, but we've laid a foundation then for, you know, a future relationship. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, a colleague of mine, Loxley, reached out to somebody about uh, 18 months ago. And at the time, she, you know, kindly replied, hey, look, not interested, don't want to make a move right now, um, but thanks for, for reaching out. And, and he'd sort of shared with her a Calendly link to book a meeting. And, yeah, a couple of days ago, he had a meeting in his diary from this person. Um, and when he got on the call, he said, oh, I don't remember sending you a link. And, and she said, oh, you sent it me 18 months ago, and I'm looking now, and I'd really like to talk to you. So, you know, the, the way we view things and the way I would advise people to look at things is, look, your circumstances can change. You may not be looking now, but you might be in 12, 18 months time. And it, it's good to have built a connection, a relationship with a company like ours who are, you know, genuinely knowledgeable about the industry, um, but also, you know, keen to help people. Um, so if the timing isn't right to move now, we're not going to push people into anything. But we would like to build that trust and that relationship for when they're ready. So from the way the process works from the, the, the company side, right, is that you come back with an, a couple of profiles. So you can't, you don't just normally come back and say, Jane, is it, this is the final person, right? Normally <laughs> you present a couple of people, right? Or Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. We have a couple of different business models that, that, that we can work on with, um, you know, with clients. And, and that really then depends on, the needs of the client, you know, the, the volume of the recruitment that they have, and um, also the, the sort of parameters that we're working towards, you know, how soon do they need this person? How critical is the hire? Um, and so, 
as a result of that, we can adopt different approaches to the recruitment process for the client. And in some instances, you know, we might present candidates as and when we have them, you know, and it, it can take a while for us to find candidates. I mean, I did some analysis um, actually only recently and it, there was one job that we filled earlier this year that took us over a year to fill. Um, you know, we, we kept going, we kept going, we went through three rounds of first interviews, we had multiple offers on it, and eventually we got the right candidate. Um, so so every process is is different. Um, you know, what we try to, to do is create uh, a solution that fits the needs of the client, you know, and in, as I said, in some cases, that may be, we send candidates as and when we have them. In some cases, we'll manage it as a project, we'll agree the timescales, and we'll deliver a shortlist to that client on an agreed date and we've pre-arranged all of the interviews so that we can close the process quicker. So it depends very much on the needs of the client and to a certain extent on the availability of talent. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there's only one candidate that's going to get a role. So while clients probably value having four or five to choose from, in additive manufacturing, that isn't always the case that there would be that many candidates suitable for that position. So you might have to accept that there are only one or two suitable profiles and make a decision whether you think they're right or not. And how do you take it into account? Like I know that for example, a lot of the companies in our industry are very, very different culturally. How do you do that? Is that important? Or are you just like looking for the ideal kind of what a sales manager? Or are you in the back of your head always thinking like, yeah, because you guys get paid, I think, a couple of months' salary, right, if it's successful. But I, I'm guessing that if that guy ends up not working out, they don't come back to you, right? So, the, <laughs> so you, you want the, that to be successful, uh, you know, to, to, to a certain extent. So how do you, you know, do, do you take that cultural stuff into account? Like, like you know, if somebody's a real go-getter, would you place them more in this kind of company? Or, or is that not so important? I think that's the most important thing, Yoris. You know, without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, we are assessing skills and suitability for the role as a kind of basic entry point for an individual into a process. But beyond that, we're assessing their motivations, their personality, their fit with uh, with the culture of the company. And, you know, we're looking to make, you know, long-term hires. And again, you know, I, I, I can sort of give you some some data on that that I did recently. Yeah, I think over 78%, it's, it was 78% there, there or thereabouts, of people that we've placed over the last five years remain in employment with the companies that we placed them with. So, you know, I think we've got a, a good track record of making successful long-term hires into companies. But, you know, we don't always get it right. Um, and, you know, the interview process and screening process isn't always 100% accurate. And sometimes somebody can come across really well in interview and then for whatever reason, it doesn't work out, which is why we offer to, to our clients a, a free replacement guarantee. Um, so if in the first sort of 12 weeks where we've been working with a client on a contingent hire basis, the candidate leaves or the client uh, lets them go um, as a result of you know a poor fit, then we'll find them a free replacement. Um, and actually, we extend that guarantee up to six months where we work with clients on a retained basis. Um, it's very rare that we have to find that free replacement. But when we do, we put every effort into finding them somebody just, 
as good or better than the original candidate who will be a long-term hire for the uh, for the company. So you know, we do everything we can to make sure we find the right people, but it's never perfect. Um, let, let's put it that way. And then when do I talk about salary? Is it, you know, if I just say to a recruiter, you know, I mean, seriously, I have so many friends of mine that have like problems with this where they're, they're quite a couple of interviews deep and then all of a sudden they're like, you know, 50K apart or something like that. Um, but, you know, is, is, there, is there a right moment? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining with the recruiter, you can kind of be very upfront. Maybe with a company, maybe it would seem greedy, but with a recruiter, it would be maybe very clarifying, right? I would imagine yeah. you have to be if you want yeah. to get the candidate you want to get as a company coming to a recruiter. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have to have um, a clear idea from the, the company at the outset, you know, what, what are their kind of uh, expectations as far as salary is concerned and what are the additional package elements that, that, uh, that they'd like to offer. We, you know, produce every year the Global Salary Survey, which can act as quite a good barometer um, for the industry to, to, to gauge whether you're at a market level or not. Um, but then individually, role by role, we can also offer the client you know, a kind of, you know, salary benchmarking exercise to sort of support that and ensure that, you know, what they're offering is at a market level. We do often see that there can be a gap between the expectation of the candidate and um, the expectation of the client when it comes to salary. Um, We try and make that process as transparent as possible right from the very start, but that is challenging. You know, there are some states, for example, in the US where we're simply not allowed to ask people the salary question um and and as a result of that you know it's quite challenging to 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 gain alignment Um, so in that instance we have to share what the client is prepared to pay and 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 hope that the candidate says yes or no that fits with where i want to be and and then we can uh, we can move forward i think the hardest bit about salary and, and like you say it can be a contentious issue and this is actually where if you're an employer or if you're a, a candidate working with a recruiter can actually have some benefit. You know, when you're coming to the point of negotiating your salary, imagine you're the candidate and you're negotiating your salary with your future boss. Any negotiation is tense and, you know, both sides have a different perspective. And, you know, you, you're effectively creating a conflict before you've even started. And so, you know, working with a recruiter like us, we can act as that objective third party whose interests can basically serve both sides and take the fire or the heat out of a negotiation, you know, and, and, and bring the two sides together in, a, in an amenable way. I know some states, for example, now say you have to you have to state salary range when attempting to employ someone. Yeah. Is that causing you no i don't i don't think it's, it's causing anything. it is what it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's helping it's, it's it's i guess is the other one when when you're forced into it I, i'm wondering if it's almost easier on some level because it's just out of the way right at the well, beginning. I, I, I think where it's where it's probably easier or, or where it helps is you know if you don't um publish salary on job adverts which is obviously what you're talking about and uh, as you said there's a couple of states where now you know, it, it's a legal requirement to post the, the, the sort of compensation details on any job posting. Um, what it does do is it reduces the applications where salary is unknown and would be unsuitable. So a candidate who knows the salary isn't going to apply to it if it's below what they're looking for. So you then don't go through a process of screening people only to find out they've applied, but 
the role isn't paying what they would need it to to uh, meet their expectations. So in that sense, it, it's probably beneficial. Um, in other sense, I think it perhaps does also um, create a challenge where sometimes you want people to apply who've got the right skills, but for whom the salary, it might not be quite right because the client, if they get the right person, might be able to move things. Um, so in, in that case, you're perhaps um, missing out on profiles who would have otherwise applied that you could have moved the needle a little bit with the client to get on board. So I think it's um, some pros, some cons in that sense, Matt. And then what about the cost to the player? of for recruiting is there a like is there a general fee structure that people should be expecting for these types of things or is there a red flag that they should be looking out for to know if a potential <laughs> well, recruiter I, 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 I don't know how to answer that question truthfully no, I, yeah, yeah i don't mean I feel to like expose I'm, your particular structure yeah my, my particular structure up now i mean <laughs> we, i mean our, our process as i said you know there's three business models that we adopt the contingent hiring structure which is purely based on success where we get a fee which is a percentage of the first year salary and and, and, and benefits of the uh, employee who's hired and, and that's purely success-based the client only pays if we find them a great candidate we work on a retained model where we, we take a proportion of the fee up front which is a quarter of that uh, total fee and then three quarters is, is on success and then with some clients we have a monthly retainer and they pay us a, a, a figure every month um, uh, for us to recruit you know, typically a variety of different roles for them over a period of time. And then every six months, we kind of balance the books and say, you've paid us X. It should have been Y. There's a difference and, and we'll invoice them in the difference. Um, so so that, that, that's the way we work. But, you know, some recruiters will have different business models um, to, to, to that or different structures to, to that. But, but generally, the fees are based on the gross remuneration of the candidates um, that are placed typically. And I've even heard of people offering fun, goofy things like if if the person leaves within a year, we'll find you another person or something like that. Well, that, that's what I was saying earlier, Max. We yeah, offer yeah. A, a guarantee. Guarantee, exactly. Yeah, we'll offer a guarantee if if they're you know not successful, you know, we'll find them a free replacement. And and I think you know that's that's probably the the right thing to do. So let's talk a little bit about the, this the salary survey kind of stuff. Like, okay, so so uh, I remember that, that you said there was about two hundred thousand people working AM, something like that. Or I believe so, without the data right in front of me. Um, you know, I couldn't give you a definite uh, a definite number on but, that. But, I mean, that's a generalized idea of the entire workforce market globally, yeah. or is that yeah okay. globally? Yeah, yeah, the entire workforce in AM globally. Yeah, hundred thousand people is tiny. (laughs) It is, but then when you think about, you know, the total size of the market, and then when you think about the players and the number of employees at each of those companies, it makes sense. It's about what Apple has or something like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. In one, but Amazon warehouse. Yeah. And and so, what are what are the salary trends? Is is it going up? Is it going down? Because there's a lot of stuff happening, which is kind of it's, you know the overall picture is quite confusing actually. I, I would say confusing is a really great way to describe things at the moment, Yoris, because there's a lot going on in the industry as a whole, which I think is creating quite a turbulent time for, for, for staffing and, and, and hiring as far as additive manufacturing is concerned. 
I think what we saw last year, you know, and, and this is looking really at sort of 2022 um, data, was that um, there was a general trend for salaries to increase in the US. I believe it was around sort of 11, 12 percent or something like that. Again, without having the, the figures right in front of me and something similar in Asia. We did see a slight uh, reduction in salaries in Europe. But, you know, when I kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, you know, generally the trend was that salaries had across most areas of that market, you know, increased. So I think still last year, you know, we had a, the post-COVID boom was still in full effect in the early part of 2022 and things did slow down a little bit towards the second half of the year. And, and that's when we started to see the layoffs in the industry from the likes of Desktop Metal and Carbon and these sorts of organisations, which, you know, then started to have an impact on salaries. and. You know, we're, we're uh, you know, a few months away from starting the data collection for the 2024 um, report. But I would expect that we'll start to see in, in, in the report that will be released in January, salaries being relatively flat year on year. So I don't expect us to see any growth really in, in any of the you know, key markets or across any of the key disciplines at all in this sort of 12 month period. And, and these people that are leaving because of the layoffs, and we would, there's all this merger stuff afoot. So there may actually, if one of these mergers or a bunch of them happen, there may be many more layoffs uh, uh, in the future. Do you see these people find new jobs in additive, or are you expecting a lot of these guys to leave and join other industries? I think that's a great point, um, Joris. And, and I think with all this talk of, you know, kind of mergers and takeovers and things like that, the human element is something that's, you know, perhaps not talked about enough. You know, you, you've got, thousands of employees across these businesses who will feel, you know, somewhat uncertain about the future, um, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of potential impacts of, of you know, such a sizable merger, you know, Stratasys and, and desktop metal. So it inevitably creates uncertainty. And if the merger goes through, then there will inevitably be rationalization. You know, it, it will only make financial sense if you start to cut you know duplication um you don't need two finance functions you don't need two hr functions you know for example you don't necessarily need you know salespeople in the same geographies um you know for two different companies or multiple different product sets so you know there will inevitably be rationalization and and, and for those people I think there will be opportunities in the market because there continues to be innovation. There continues to be growth within the market, albeit perhaps not at the 25, 30% CAGR that people had expected. But I think we saw recently that, you know, sort of low, low double digits, sort of 11, 12, 13% growth is, 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 is um, you know, probably where the industry's at right now. And, you know, that does mean that there will be opportunities within the industry for people to find new roles. But for some of those people, though, they will leave the industry. We saw that with the layoffs last time round. You know, robotics, for example, remains really hot. So a lot of the skills that people have within additive are quite transferable, and particular on the sales side, we, we, we see, you know, people moving, you know, in that direction. So, you know, I think there will be opportunities there. I think what's not often sort of spoke about, you know, when we talk about mergers like the impending strategies and desktop metal, um, you know, acquisition, merger, call, call it what you want, is that um, there's a big cultural challenge, you know, of bringing two, you know, big companies like that together. Um, you know, they've been run very differently. 
the culture of the two organizations and, and the way they operate is likely to be very very different so you know it will be you know probably interesting to sort of see how that evolves because you know even if you're not one of the unlucky ones who might be laid off or let go um there'd probably still be a degree of um uncertainty around your future you know the new organization might not be the same as the one you joined the culture might be different and you know as a result of that you might start to question whether it's the right place for you and and, and for your long-term future so you know i think it's really important that the leaders of those two businesses um pay a lot of attention to ensuring that you know when they do integrate that business they think carefully about the people in those organizations and they don't manage the layoffs the way some have been managed you know in the past you know i've heard horror stories of emails being sent or text messages being sent to tell people they've been laid off you know hey at least have the decency to sit down with people and you know tell them face to face or you know through video conference or you know manager to 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 employee um and then also to put in place you know outplacement services um you know don't just let people go and fend for themselves in a challenging market you know give them opportunities to work with recruiters like us who could come in and offer advice and guidance on the market you know or other outplacement services and and then you know sort of thirdly you know think about you know the cultural impact of such a merger you know you want to retain good people in your business but you might lose them simply because of the way you manage things so you know paying attention to that will be you know hugely important if both sides and in particular Stratasys are going to get the value that they expect from this deal. Um, I don't know the statistics, but, you know, there's a lot of data out there about, you know, the, the negative impact of such big acquisitions, you know, where in particular the integration is not done well and culture and how you manage people is going to be a major driver to how successful this will be or not. Yeah, well, there's yeah, a really off-quoted uh, Harvard Business Review article by Christensen. It says like seventy to ninety percent don't work on integration. So yeah, there you go. And that's, and that's kind of like that's a very daunting kind of thing. It's a, exactly. I, I looked a, really deep in this. We had a really big discussion on on, on someone on the internet about like how how many of these don't do or don't work. And there's surprisingly little research actually into this, which is also a bit yeah. scary. But um, imagine I'm one of these people laid off, or I'm afraid of being laid off, because that's the other thing that people don't often talk about. A friend of mine was at a large multinational, and they just you know, they were going to get rid of a division. They're going to lay off like 10,000 people. And that meant that nearly no one was doing work. He's like, I'm, I'm the only one in the ACTRA application. Everyone else is on monster board is what the guy uh, <laughs> told me once, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and it's also like, it really paralyzes a company because like, you know, and also it changes your goals. Maybe you'll do your day to day work, but you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to do, um, whatever that specific company training that you need to do to go to the next level, because, Hey, maybe I won't be there in two months. You know? So I do think it really changes how your organization interacts with itself. Uh, yeah. I think people don't really often consider this. Definitely not. You know, I, like you said earlier, I think this is a big reason why so many of these integrations or mergers, mergers don't work. I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's lots of stories, you know, where, where, you know, like you said, businesses who are, you know, about to be acquired, for example, um, you know, once they're acquired, 
or, or at least the, the intention is to acquire, the people inside that business sort of switch off to a certain extent in, in terms of you know pushing forward the innovation because they don't know what the future holds. They don't know whether their job is secure or not. So they will probably, as you said, be distracted by thinking about you know themselves and protecting their own futures and and therefore you know do the minimum that's required to to to, to get by. But you know might be you know one eye on the jobs market at the same time. What would you? Uh, I can imagine. I think the last time I did a job interview, like a proper job interview, was like 2011 or something like this. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what I would do actually. If if um, you know, what would I do if I'm like somebody who's been in a company, like uh, doing a mid career, I've been like 10, 20 years in experience. All of a sudden, I'm on the job market. What would you advise that that I do? Um, well, there's a couple of things that that I would do, and I, mean, I think the question that you're asking is is sort of two, twofold. You know. Part of it is I haven't had an interview for a long time and, and maybe that could be a scary prospect. So, you know, I'll come on to that in a second. And then the other part is, well, well how do I get myself out there? You know, how do I, you know, make sure that, you know, I'm going to have an opportunity to move into? And, and I think there's a number of things that, you know, we would say to people to do in that case. I mean, probably the simplest and, you know, easiest one to do is make sure your LinkedIn profile's up to date, you know, relevant with all your experience, with as many keywords in there that, you know, recruiters like me are going to like and see and, and, and want to talk to you about. I think that's probably the easiest thing to do. The second thing is throughout your career, you build, you know, really strong network of people, um, you know, and actually, if I look at how, you know, even my own business has grown, you know, across the different recruitment companies, we've got, you know, something around 50 people now across the four different recruitment companies. And I would say that over 50% of them, somehow there was a connection to somebody that we hired. Okay, so, you know, somebody I knew or somebody somebody else knew, you know, was hired into the business. So you'd be surprised, you know, when you suddenly start looking for a role, if you reach out into your kind of network, your broader network, and just kind of put the feelers out there, there'll be people in that network who A, want to help you, um, and B, actually might be able to find you a role, um, you know, in their company or in a friend's company, or they know someone who's hiring. So yeah, just yeah, don't be afraid to, to, to get the feelers out into your own network. I think then obviously, you know, keep an eye on, you know, the jobs market, you know, look at, you know, LinkedIn jobs, for example, or indeed, you know, these types of job boards, you can put in searches, create alerts, so it sends you jobs that are relevant direct to your inbox, I'd, I'd certainly do that. And then try and find a good recruiter, um, you know, obviously in additive manufacturing, I'd say come to us. Um, uh, you know, and I think if you're in the broader advanced manufacturing as well, you know, we, we'd still love to talk to people, um, you know, and, and explain your situation, explain what's happened, talk to the recruiter about, you know, kind of the types of roles you're looking for, your experience, your background, and then work with that recruiter to find, you know, the right next step for you. Um, I think that's, you know, the approach. Then, you know, you think about the interview. Yeah, it's it's scary, but actually there's a lot of great tools out there on YouTube or LinkedIn about, you know, preparing for interviews. Um, we actually do an interview prep session with every candidate before we send them to a first interview. Um, you know, we'll go through the role with them again. We'll go through the company. We'll talk about the characters that are going to be interviewing them, the types of questions. We'll ask them some questions and see how they respond and give them guidance and advice. So, you know, there are recruiters out there like us that should 
you know, would do that for people. And especially those people who haven't been in an interview for a long time, it, it, it's almost a necessity on our side to, to do that, to make sure that, um, well, they do the best they can, but also, you know, reflect well on us, you know, in, in that sense. I mean, that's a bit of a selfish thing to say, but, you know, ultimately the candidates we put forward to clients are a reflection of us as a business and our ability to do our job. So, you know, we don't want to put someone forward who's not prepared, who's nervous, who, you know, is really, you know, not relevant or or not um you know prepared well enough for the interview so we'll do everything we can to help that person um be their best self and how would you like uh, i have some people i know that like maniacally prep by learning about everything about the company (laughs) (laughs) and other people just like cyber stalk the hiring manager and stuff like that (laughs) you know are there there things you can recommend obviously you're not going to recommend cyber stalking the manager but but i think you recommend doing like the uh, i would imagine you spent you know spending some time understanding what kind of company uh you have in front of you you know could be i always like for example tell people like you know, try to figure out how culturally they are and also ask people who would used to work there or work there what it's like, you know, what kind yeah. of place it is to kind of inform yourself and see it much more as like a dating experience <laughs> uh, than, than you're absolutely trying to absolutely get them. Uh, but is there, you know, what, what kind of preparation stuff would you recommend people do? I, I think you've touched upon it all there, Yoris. I mean, yeah, definitely not the cyber stalking, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to look up your uh, interviewers on LinkedIn. So you get a bit of a steer on their profile, their experience, their background. Maybe you might have some shared connections to them. Um, that 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 can always be be useful. And then, yeah, clearly research the company. Um, you, know, you don't need to spend days, you know, maybe one or two hours getting to understand the company, their product services, whatever they may be. Look up recent news articles, press releases, that sort of stuff. I think it's give you current up-to-date information about what's going on in the company any videos you can find Um, if they're a listed business you know results are always good to give you an indication of how the company's performing as well and the stability and security of the the company Um, you know investment rounds you can find on Crunchbase and things like that so you know I think that that's the sort of stuff that 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 we would advise uh, alongside then also the interview itself you know, quite often within a job description, you'll get, you know, a set of required skills, but also a set of required behaviors or competencies. So spending a little bit of time kind of running through your experience in your own mind and thinking, okay, where can I demonstrate experience of leadership? Or, you know, where can I demonstrate my experience of project management? Or how can I show good customer service? And try to kind of come up with examples that would really demonstrate the behaviors that the client is looking for. That's certainly uh, the, the the approach I would take in, in preparing for an interview. I will say there's nothing more frustrating as someone who employs people when I do an interview and they have no idea about the company that they're applying to. So, yeah. I think it's the biggest red flag. Yeah, it is everybody. a huge red flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's, it's a cultural thing. Is like you said, it's super important. I think trying to find out what kind of people they are and how they express themselves and how they kind of like feel about themselves, you know, and what is important to them is, is also, I think to me is that's a great big factor that's going to determine your, if you stay there for a long time or just a little bit, you know, that that's where recruiters come in though, because we will have met the client, you know, maybe not in this age in person, um, you know, through digital channels. But in many cases, we will have met them in person, whether it's trade events or other events like that. Um, 
and 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 then the recruiter can give you that sense of what are they like you know what are they like as people what's the culture like and you know i think that that's probably something that's a little bit harder to grasp you know maybe when you're not working with a recruiter and you're talking direct to the company and, and, and i just thought about this like now all these interviews are in zoom right um, you know, are there best Zoom. practices for your first Zoom interview? Do you have to wear a suit with boxer shorts, or what's the? What <laughs> I wonder how there? many people have done that. You uh, know, not for a job interview. I think it's, it's thirty-five degrees here in the UK at the moment. It's pretty hot, um, and uh, yeah, I could well imagine having just an open collar shirt on and not a lot else. To be honest, because it's pretty, pretty warm, but. You know, I think now in the modern sort of age that we live in, in particular in additive manufacturing, I think there'd be very few roles where you'd be expected to be in a sort of shirt and tie suit. You know, this industry is quite a relaxed industry. Um, you know, most of the, the businesses have a kind of dress down culture. So I think you really have to, you know, be yourself, um, you know, be, be, you know, who you are. And, um, you know, while, you know, in days gone by, I'd have always said, make sure you've got a shirt and tie on and, and things like that. I think you have to mirror the uh, the organization that, that you're talking to. So, you know, many of these kind of like exciting young startups, you know, they're wearing, you know, cargo pants and polo shirt to, to, uh, to, to work every day. So when you turn up to your team's interview, the guy sat opposite you on the screen is wearing a polo shirt and you've got a shirt and tie on it perhaps doesn't align then with the culture as you sort of said earlier. So I think, again, you know, getting a, a handle on that, and that's something that you can ask, you know, a recruiter will tell you, but if you're not working with a recruiter, you know, that's something you can ask, you know, should I wear a shirt and tie for the interview or, you know, is casual okay? You know, I think that, that that's uh, that's a fair question to, to ask them before you interview. Well, one of the biggest things when I talk to people now is that it seems to me that a lot of employees are really, really into this work from home thing. Yes. Uh, I know a lot of you know, some people that got a sweet gig out of that. Like some people are still like, you know, they live in the countryside in the UK and have a London job, which is okay. But I know people that are like, you know, literally like Bali, but New York salary. And they're like, uh, no, no, things are fine. We should, we should keep doing this. <laughs> uh, so, so, and, but we're still seeing some kind con- some country companies like, oh yeah, totally stay where you are. And others are like, no, no, you need to come back. Is that a big differentiator now as well? I think this is going to be a generational thing, Joris, if if I'm honest. Um, I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, it depends, you know, kind of your view on this. Um, with what happened with COVID, we have accelerated or facilitated this sort of flexible working, this ability to work remotely and, and, and work from home type sort of scenario, which, you know, once you open Pandora's box, it's, it's difficult to kind of put it back in and this is where i say i think it's a generational thing because i think for the current sort of generation who just hit the workforce or hit the workforce through covid or have been involved in the you know kind of jobs market or workforce in covid have become accustomed or to a certain extent expect the flexibility to 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 work from home you know, in our business, for example, I can work anywhere in the world, but, you know, we've asked people to come back into the office because it's more stimulating. We are able to talk more frequently with each other, share ideas, share thoughts about candidates, jobs, etc. And we see, you know, better results from that. And, you know, I think that now, 
um, as we move forward, more and more organizations are going to want people back in the office or, or at work. And, you know, while um, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the sort of current sort of generation, if you will, will, will probably rally against that to a certain extent. I think future generations will, will, will probably, you know, come back to the office. Um, but having said that, you know, not all roles allow for it. And this is where there's inequality because, okay, right. if you're a software engineer, you know, maybe you, you can work in Bali and, and, and as long as you have a good internet connection. Um, you can do the same work um, whether you're there or in New York. Um, but if you're a mechanical engineer or a material scientist, um, you can't be based in Bali and work on machines in New York. So I think this is where inequality comes in. And, and, and then that creates uh, cultural tension within an organization. So I think that's where the challenge is going to arise for, for companies that are trying to manage this sort of flexibility, work from home, because one size does not fit all and different jobs have different levels of um, ability to, to, to do that. Um, what I would say is, and we sort of saw this coming through from the salary survey last year, that flexibility, you know, and the ability to, you know, work remotely is started to play a bigger part in the motivations of talent. Um, and so actually, it's one of the things that a lot of people expect now to be offered by an organization. Um, and, and I think that this is going to be a challenge that a lot of organizations will face with a certain generation of talent. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the uh, in the coming years. We can be even more like old men shaking our fists on the lawn, telling the kids <laughs> to get off. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but this is also a really interesting thing. It's like I, I I've known a bunch of people that didn't really negotiate much for their salary, right? I used to do, I used to way back when do sales roles. So I always thought, if I don't negotiate for my salary, this guy's going to think I'm a pushover and he's not going to want me as a sales guy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm used to negotiating for salary, right? I don't always do it, but, but it's just, you know. And But I've seen other people that are like, let's say they make 100K, they'll, they'll ask for 150 because why not, right? Yeah. And other people are just like, they're more like, I make 100K now. So yeah, it needs to be a little bit more than that. They leave it kind of up to the company. What yeah. would you advise now? Because it seems really logical to kind of go for broke, but then again, it might come off as being too greedy or unrealistic, and might make another candidate seem, you know, more irrational. <laughs> what would you, what would you uh, suggest in that kind of uh, these kind of scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I think we've come a little bit back round to you know where we were earlier, where you know working with a recruiter who has the interests of both sides at heart, you can find the middle ground and, and manage the expectation accordingly. I certainly not telling any of my candidates to go for broke um, because, you know, one of the things that I think you could do in that scenario is really, as you say, you know, price yourself out of the opportunity, um, you know, where another candidate, you know, has more realistic expectations. You might be the better candidate, but you simply ask for too much. And, and as a result, they go with the other candidate, you know, so despite the fact you maybe really wanted that job, you lose out because of poor negotiation. Um, so, you know, my advice is to be realistic. Um, now, everybody is struggling at the moment with cost of living increases. And I think as a result, you know, it is fair to ask for, you know, an increase in your salary. I think what is fair 
you know, is probably somewhere between 10 to, to 15% increase in base salary. Um, I think if you're asking for much more than that, well, you're only going to help precipitate further inflation in the economy, for one, um, because you get the, the, the wage price spiral um, continuing. Um, but but two, I, I then think you're starting to get into an area where, you know, the company are thinking that seems like a big jump from where you are now. Now, the caveat I would add to that is you might be underpaid where you are. And, and in that case, I think, you know, you should be paid fairly for what the market is is worth for your experience. And again, working with a recruiter can help you understand that and, and the recruiter can explain that to the client and explain why your expectations are what they are but if it's simply i want a salary and i want 20 30 40 percent more than what i'm on now then you know i'd question well what's your motivation for joining me is it the money or is it the job the company you know those sorts of factors because if you're prepared to you know take a job just for the salary to join me then you're probably prepared to take a better job somewhere else, paying more money, and that might be a risk to me too. So I think there's so many different factors and variables in this discussion. My advice is always be sensible, be realistic, and 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 you know, if you can work with a recruiter on this who can be objective, that will be a big help. And Nick, thank you so much for this today. Thank you so much for being on the three D pod today. Yeah, well, it's a it's a pleasure to 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 talk to you guys. So I look forward to to hearing the uh, the end result. Okay. And Max, thank you for being here as well today. Always a good time. Thank you, Joris. And thank you for listening. It's another episode of 3D Pod, and I hope you enjoy your day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.